Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Praminda Basran of VGC has come to EIS from a different direction to most, having started with an institutional GPLP fund, then expanded. Their focus and methodology is a bit different too, and we get a case study of how it works in practice, as well as discussing the benefits and challenges of getting corporate partners involved. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Parminda Bazran, who is founding partner and CEO at VGC Partners. Welcome to the podcast, Parminda. Thank you, Brian. Good to be here. As usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in venture capital? Yeah, sure. So I went to uh, do my MBA at London Business School in 2008 after spending some time operating businesses with a view to using that experience to go and build an operationally focused uh, private equity and venture capital firm. So during my time at London Business School between 2008 and 2010, I researched the market to quite a deep level to understand where the opportunity sets were. And, you know, a number of things became apparent to me. Uh, number one, you know, there's a huge capital capitalization gap within growth capital, which sort of sits in between venture capital and private equity. Number two, uh, technology was having quite a great impact on two sectors, which I knew pretty well, one being digital media. So you could see a lot of interesting trends developing within those two sectors due to the advent of new technology. And thirdly, I realized that you don't necessarily, you obviously need a track record to build a fund, but you you can start off doing deal by deal, which is essentially raising money for one deal at a time, build out your track record doing individual transactions, and then move into fund structures, which is sort of the path that I took. So for the first few years, I just did deal by deal transactions. I was then invited to invest alongside one of the co-founders of Facebook, a guy called Eduardo Saverin, in a fund that spanned uh, Los Angeles, uh, London and Singapore. And after that, spun out and set up on my own. So very much focused around consumer, digital media and tech. And my first fund was a 50 million sterling fund uh, backed by British Business Bank, other institutional investors, uh, family offices and high net worths. So it's taken us sort of 10 years to get to this point. So the, the business currently invests out of SEIS. We are obviously launching an EIS, which we're talking to you about. Our 50 million growth cap fund is now fully invested and we're going to be closing uh, this year a 150 million growth capital fund as well. So the EIS business fits nicely between our SEIS and growth capital, uh, growth capital fund. Yeah. And one thing that I find interesting is that a lot of EIS managers I come across, they kind of start at the bottom and build up in the sense that they, they start an SAIS fund and then they sort of say, right, well, do the EIS as follow on? And then quite a few of them have ambitions to get into the sort of more institutional GPL, LP market. You've kind of gone the other way in that you started uh, almost with GPLP and then came down. Why was that? Yes, that's right. Well, 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 I think from from my perspective, 
there's a lot that we can do within the growth cap space in terms of not only understanding how to build businesses of that size and how to scale them, but also in terms of operational knowledge and network, we can add far more as a business. And when I first started, I could add far more to a business that had a run rate of sort of five to 10 million of revenue. So I felt it was important to start where I could win, build a track record, and then integrate backwards. So the reason for our strategy around that is that we we essentially wanted to understand from seed to growth, have deep networks within consumer technology and digital media, which is why we've got the three pools of capital in the business. It's very rare that a business will move from one pool of capital to another but in the instances that they do we do full lp sign off i think it's uh, to just to avoid conflicts if we do want to take a, a deal from our seis fund into the main fund and we have done it once before uh, we have a process internally to manage those conflicts and all of that type of stuff but what that gives us it's quite interesting it gives us real great links into corporate partners we have one foot in the startup community through our SEIS fund, which also allows us to build relationships with other venture capital firms. We see next generation technology that is coming through both within in London, US and Europe and how that technology is being applied. And we also build relationships with the next generation of founders coming through. So from a returns perspective, we can obviously add value and we are making returns. But there is also a strategic part of what we're doing here, which means that the the sum is greater than the parts themselves. And and that's that's a big part of what we're doing here. Cross pollination across portfolio, introducing founders to each other who can collaborate all of that is a big part of what we do here at VGC Partners. So one of the things I found intriguing about what you do is that within those areas of sort of consumer technology and digital media, you choose investment themes and you're yeah. very proactive about choosing these themes because they're very research-led and, and yeah. you're changing these themes probably more than other people I, I, I come across. I want to start by how do you actually research a theme? Because in some ways, you, I feel you're kind of imagining the future. Yeah, we are. Uh, you know, we, we certainly we certainly are. And I think I think a lot of what we do is to try and understand where consumer preferences, technology, and markets are going to converge at some point in the future. Because we are, we have to remember that we are a seller of businesses in the end. So we need to understand what we're investing in is going to be a saleable asset down the line. It's quite interesting for us because we, we have over a thousand deal opportunities coming into the business every year. For SEIS and EIS, it's some of those investment opportunities can look interesting. But the main growth capital fund is very much a thesis-driven approach, and that then filters down into what we're looking at at EIS and SEIS as well. So it might just be helpful to give a couple of examples of what we've invested in over the last few years so, so you can understand what we've done. So I think the first thing that we look at is compound annual growth rates of subsectors sub within markets that we're investing in. So if you take... The fact that we're in consumer, we're in FMCG, and we do luxury. Sneaker resale, it was becoming apparent that sneaker resale was becoming a very interesting part of 
of the of the luxury market. When you look more deeply, there's quite a few interesting things that are going on within sneaker resale. Not only is it a subsector that's growing at compound annual growth rates of 50% a year, but you know sneakers have actually become an asset class themselves. You know the next generation of kids coming through that they're less focused on buying a house. They're more interested in investing their money in alternative assets things that they're interested in and things that they enjoy. So whether that's blockchain or NFTs or sneakers, there's been this huge subculture that has emerged, which has meant that there is the secondary market for sneakers has, has grown dramatically. To give you an idea of where that business has gone, in the year we invested, uh, which was 18 months ago, their sales were 150,000 per month. Within 15 months, it was 2 million per month. And the run rate of the business now is 4.5 million per month. So the business has grown quite rapidly. And then alongside that, we have to look at what we can bring to the party. So we felt that we could elevate Kit Game to become a luxury brand. So we've done that. And we've done that in a number of ways. But we moved there. They had a fixed lease retail location on High Street Kensington. And during COVID, we felt that there was a very interesting opportunity for us to look at pop-ups where you can get better deals on rents, shorter terms. So you have a lower capex for setting up the stores, but then you cycle the location. So we ended up doing a pop-up in Covent Garden opposite Apple, elevated the business to an even more luxury stand when we opened a site at Burlington Arcade, which generally reserved for VIPs, so sports people, musicians, rappers. They all go in there to sort of curate their own look. So that's been quite interesting. And then we've also done pop-ups in Leeds, at Leeds Trinity, Birmingham, the Bullring, Manchester Arndale. So all of these things are, you know, giving the brand some presence we drive a lot of the interest online. People will then purchase. People can then go and browse in store, which is quite unusual for those types of products because people historically have bought retail sneakers off platforms like StockX, which you know it can take ten to fourteen days for that product to get to you. So there was a lot of there was a lot of interesting things within the sector, and then a lot of interesting things that we felt we could bring to the business to help it go and supercharge its trajectory, which is which is something we've done. Okay. So digging into that a little bit, you, you mentioned you sort of had this idea that this could be a luxury brand. Where did the idea come from? How did your research lead to you thinking sneakers are the thing? Well, we mapped the market. So we felt that sneaker resale was a great place for us to be as a firm. You know, it fits what we do. We can bring a lot of value. We've obviously got great networks with a lot of the larger sports retailers and the brands. So, you know, it, 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 ticked, it, it ticked a box for us. We also felt like, you know, when we looked at it, we sort of researched the market. So you map the market. On Kit Game, I just bothered them for six months and kept, e kept emailing them until they took my call. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how it works. I mean, I do less of that now because the business is a lot bigger. But this is, this is a few years ago. And, you know, I was on the front end doing all of that work. So, and then you sit down, you sit down with the guys, get a feel for it, go through the deal process. You do the psychometric testing and all of the other due diligence that we do, both financially and commercially, and then close the deal. So... It's been a very exciting ride for us, that one. And we always have, you know, 
every every cohort of deals we do, there's always one or two things that pop and sort of do significant returns for for the group, which is great. Yeah, and and the other thing that strikes me about that sort of business is how that you can be sure that this is a lasting business that in five or ten years' time is going to give you an exit, and not just because the thing that always worries me about consumer is that there's a lot of fads that last a year or two and then they're gone. Yeah, that's right. It's it's our job to understand culturally what we think is going to stick. And so you mentioned fads. I mean, we're very much focused on when fads become trends. So we're interested in that. We're also interested in the underlying business model. We're also in, interested in consumer tastes and preferences. We're also interested in the subcultures that are driving some of these some of these markets. So, you know, music is a big part of sneaker culture. There's been a huge growth within, you know, urban music here in the UK. There's some artists, you know, from Stormzy uh, to Fredo to Central Sea, all of those lads who are sort of driving this sort of UK rap and grime subculture. So there's a number of things that we look at to understand whether these things are going to stick. What you then do is you say, okay, well, how can we actually, what are the businesses we're looking to aspire to? And I think if you look at businesses like Kith, if you look at businesses like Goat, you know, these businesses in the US have stood the test of time. And that's another thing that we look at. We, we do look at a lot of what's going on in LA. And, and there are other sneaker resellers, I presume, because I don't know them. Yeah, that's right. They are, they are luxury sneaker resellers. I think, you know, what Kith is quite interesting because they, you know, they, they do sell a lot of streetwear and accessories as well. And Kit Game is selling quite a lot of streetwear. So we, we have a lot of Fear of God products in there. But also as well now, because Kit Game has become so prevalent, We've been selling secondary market goods since the inception of the firm, but now we've got a lot of cool, interesting brands that you would see, most likely see in places like End and Mr. Porter. They're now coming to us and saying, can we, can we give you an account? So it's been quite interesting, the evolution of Kit Game, because it started off as a rough and ready sort of resale business, but it's now very much migrating into a luxury reseller of a broad range of brands across footwear and streetwear, and, and that's where we're taking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in this case, it sounds like it was more about the consumer side than th- there's some technology in there. You mentioned online sales, but it's more about the brand and what they're doing with it rather than, you know, there's some fancy technology in there. Yeah, well, there is some fancy technology in there. So, you know, when we talk about tech, I think that, you know, anything that's tech stack around front end and back end supply chain for e-commerce, you know, anybody can get that. I I think there's some competitive advantages to be had from those tech stacks by deploying them in the right way, for sure. But the technology that we're building, we looked at all of the businesses around the world um, who do this, the majority of them being in America, and we felt like the the best platform, Stadium Goods in New York have got a great platform. So we know that the Van Group in New York were the guys that built that platform for them. So we went to the Van Group to set up our consignment platform. So just to explain that, Kit Game is a secondary market business, which means there's lots of collectors who buy and sell these products 
on platforms such as Stadium Goods or StockX. So they will buy, hold, and then sell for a premium. So a lot of what we sell is going at two to three times retail mm. value. Yeah. So these are collected trainers that people buy as collector's items. They're not being worn by anybody. They're being they're put on the shelf they're or They're unlocked. mostly worn. They're mostly worn. Okay, right. Uh, but some people, but uh, some people do collect. Right. And, okay. Um, a lot of people buy two pairs. They will buy one pair to wear and one pair to put in their in their wardrobe. So. And there's a lot of kids sat on hundreds of pairs or thousands of pairs of trainers. So we have built a consignment platform to allow the big collectors in London to upload all of their products. So just to give you an idea, the top 50 sneaker collectors in London give us an extra 150 to 200,000 pairs of sneakers to sell on our platform. Mm. So although you would sell those for a lower gross margin because it's peer-to-peer, your volumes go through the roof because you've got access to more stock. So we have built, we, we spent hundreds of thousands on that consignment platform. And that's going to be an interesting part of the business moving forward because it helps us source quite a lot of stock. And likewise, our store network has allowed us to source quite a lot of stock. So we have authenticators in each store. So if you look at StockX, StockX, for example, have got one authentication warehouse in Detroit. So any reseller has to go and send their product to Detroit for that product to be then sent back out to the purchaser of that product. Whereas uh, at KitGame, we have got authenticators in each of our stores. So we're getting between 350 and 500 pairs of trainers per day, brand new trainers that Mm -hmm. we buy through our store network and then resell on the KitGame platform. Okay. So So that's a decent volume. Yeah, yeah, it's a decent volume for sourcing. And then we have some product, you know, we've we, we got quite smart smart guys and girls within Kick Game who understand the asset class. There will be some models that we buy and hold. So we've got about 80, 85% of the products we sell there are resold. And we've got in our warehouse a section where we just hold products and re-release it back onto the market, you know, when we feel the time's right. Okay, and looking ahead, you obviously have you know great aspirations for this business. How do you see the exit coming? Is this something where you 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 see there's some buyers out there? Or is this something that you think will be an IPO? What what do you think the end game for this? We we've already appointed advisors, so Price Waterhouse Coopers have been appointed on Kit Game. Um, so it's the team the team that ran the Jim Shark deal, and Jim Shark went to uh, General Atlantic for a growth cap round. Uh, we are looking to do a growth cap round for Kit Game this year in the region of 80 million. And PwC are going to be taking the business to market to look for a partner for that. That's something that's already going on. Yeah, we, 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 we have a view, you know, we're in the business of getting out of stuff. So there's some businesses that you're right to hold for, for a while you know, it makes sense to do so. But a lot of our stuff, we, we're we rolling our sleeves up and getting really involved from an operational perspective to move things on year four, year five, because, you know, we don't want to hold on to things for too long. And we want to get cash back to investors. So, you know, for our first tranche of deals, our DPI is actually 1.3. And we're out turned to do 6x. But the 1.3 means that investors are in for free. 
So they've had all their money back, mm-hmm. which is a great place to be. Yeah. And that's, that's obviously one stat we always have our eye on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of examples. What was the second example you had in mind? Yeah, so uh, I, I think probably we, we've just exited iconic images to authentic brands group in New mm-hmm. York. So that was an interesting deal. But I think the exit previous to that was super awesome. So Super Awesome was a business we invested in six years ago now, and we were, we were in that for four and a half years. So we led the Series A at a 25 million pre-money, and we actually brought uh, WPP into that deal as well. And then WPP ended up becoming a big client of Super Awesome. So that's one of the interesting angles for us. We're always working with corporate partners to help drive growth of those target portfolio businesses. Super awesome at the time. I think the run rate revenue is sort of three, four million. Mm-hmm. And what does it do? It built the kids' internet. So if you think about the ad tech market today, everything's obviously automated through platforms like Critio, who are essentially generalist ad servers. If you if you think of ad spending, you know you've got two columns. So you've got TV and print, and you've got digital. In most markets in the world, five years ago. TV and print spend and digital spend was roughly 50-50. The only market in the world where that wasn't the case was in kids' products, where it was sort of 90% TV and print and only 10% digital. And the main reason for that was that a lot of these brands like Hasbro, Mattel, Nintendo, I mean, you name it, all, mm-hmm. all the big kids' brands, they weren't completely confident that they could serve ads in a copper compliant way. So that's the Children's Online Protection Agency. And they also wanted to protect their brands because I I don't think it was, they didn't feel it suitable for them to be serving digital ads for kids products alongside alcohol or other products of that nature. But there was no ad servers in the world that could completely guarantee that that would be the case. Super Awesome built a walled garden of publishers with some tech at the center of it that not only gave comfort that your brands were only going to be, your adverts were only going to be served alongside other kids' ads, but also that the technology within the ad server was copper compliant. So we took a view that the European Union was going to adopt, you know, 80, 90% of copper, which was a US-based legislation. That ended up being the case. And then obviously you had GDPR and other things. And there's a couple of interesting nuances within kids advertising. Number one, you can't drop a cookie on a kid. And number two, you can't do behavioral ads. So your creative as well needs to be quite innovative because you can only do contextual advertising not behavioral Mm -hmm. for children and that business had all of that so we ended up building that out there was subsequent investment from Mayfair equity partners Microsoft Kirkby the family that owned Lego their family office invested and uh, Epic Games was a client and they approached the management team and said that they would be interested in buying the business and made an offer of quarter of a billion for for that business. So it was a, what was interesting about that is that you could take cash or shares, and we took a combination of both, and you know had a good result on that. 
mm-hmm. on that investment. And Epic have done pretty well, I think. Yeah, they've done all right. I mean, it was a great, it was a great result. And in, and in fairness, you know, that was something that was engineered by the management team there and ended up being a great result. So, you know, well done to them for doing yeah. that, yeah. for sure. So in terms of identifying that, was that something where you identified there was a problem in the market and looked for the company or they came to you and sort of said, hey, we found this or what, or what was it? No, it was an interesting one. So I, I had asked some friends of mine at Sony Music to find me some interesting digital media opportunities. And they came back with Super Awesome. And I, I can remember doing a call with Dylan, the CEO, and it often works like this. Probably wasn't quite the right time for us to invest at the stage when I, when I first met him. And I think about a year later, Henry Chamberlain, who was at IBIS, who were another sort of BCT investor, we met at breakfast and he said, oh, you know, Super Awesome's doing well. I said, oh, you know, I met them a year ago. Let's get back in touch. So we got back in touch and then we moved the investment forward together. So, you know, we invested, we led the round and IBIS were in, WPP were in, I think Sandbox, who were another VC they were in and one or two others. And that's how it came about. And quite often in what we do, you don't meet someone and 12 weeks later do a deal. There's often quite a bit of back and forth for a year or two, understanding how founders are doing, giving advice and and wanting nothing in return. I think that's a big one, you know, for good people, you want to see them. We're all entrepreneurs in the end. We're all building businesses. So rising tide lifts all boats. You really want to sort of see, create an environment where you're supporting people. So if we see people that are too early for our thesis, but they're doing something interesting, we will tend to open up our network to support them. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, one day in the future, if they want to come back for a larger check or, feel like they want to work with us in a more meaningful way we're, we're obviously open to that and that's how a lot of it works really but you know we, we we tend to find that we as a firm we're plowing our own furrow so we we tend to be very much heads down focused on what we do rather than feeling like we're missing out on all of these other co-investment opportunity with with other funds I think, you know, in some instances, I'll give you an example. There's a big talent management business in the U.S., which I won't name, but it's owned by a very famous rapper who they used to be clients of mine when I owned Metropolis, the music studio. We want to grow kit game in the States. We wanted somebody who really understood content and talent. So because we wanted to attach the brand to some musicians out there when we do grow. And so we will then cherry pick partners. So we will ask them to co-invest alongside us and also open up their network. So it's a quite a reciprocal and beneficial partnership in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is a, another aspect of you that I think is very interesting because you've more than anybody else I've come across work with corporate partners it's an area that's had had its ups and downs, I think. It might be a fair way of putting it. So when you say working with a corporate partner, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I mean, it can be a range of things ranging from, you know, just advice all the way through to investment. So if we start with the investment piece, there's been a number of instances that we've had where we've had corporates who want to, you know, have a meaningful piece of a business that we're investing in. 
that doesn't tend to work for us. And the reason is, is that they always end up, if they're, if they're quite a meaningful part of an investment round, they always end up being the only option to sell to, and then your yeah. options are limited, and then you're not yeah. potentially and this not getting the one of the, the concerns, price. I think. Yeah. Yeah, so we never do that. So, you know, if, if a corporate wants to play with us, then it has to be on our terms, because when we come to exit, we want to make sure that we can sell the business to anybody. And that's quite important because you're looking to maximise value and you need to create competitive tension through a process anyway. But at the same time, you know, in the instances of, you know, like WPP at Super Awesome, it can be a couple of million quid, you know, over the life of the investment. They sit behind you. They're not on the board. Uh, they get information rights, but then they open up their networks. So I think the things we got through WPP was... We, for Super Awesome, we managed through WPP to get the CEO, Dylan, on WPP Livestream, which is an internal event held on each continent for all of the management teams of WPP agencies. And that was quite good because you've got a business there, it's sort of 20 billion a market cap and 200 doors you've got to knock on to sell your products and services. Uh-huh. If you can hit them from the inside out, you don't have to knock on 200 doors, so you save quite a lot of time and energy. So that was a big one. I think that we ended up making WPP as a group the largest client of the firm. I think ended up being sort of 25, 30% of revenue over time, which is great. And thirdly, we made the US their largest market because obviously for businesses like that, the US is a big place to be. So if you can see that there's going to be some benefits over time from the partnership, then you do it. And some firms are set up for it and some aren't, right? Well, think- this, is, this is something that occurred to me because clearly, you know, it would be very easy to partner with someone and they, they're just, oh, yeah, we're your partner, great, thanks, yeah, and they don't do anything or they don't yeah. have a structure that, even if they mean well, that they can't actually yeah. do anything for the company. How do you sort that out? Or decide. Well, well, that's all about the uh, relationships that we build with the corporate partners over a period of time, and really sort of understanding whether they're geared up for it or not. And and you know, it's 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 very clear the ones that are, because they will often have an incubator, they will often have a co-investment strategy off their balance sheet, they will often have an innovation hub, they will often have dedicated teams working on these projects so you know it's very clear the ones that you're able to work with and and generally for us we do have some quite long-term relationships with some of these guys with individuals there and and that also helps so but yeah for sure not not everyone's cut out for it yeah and and so it sounds like most of the time there's kind of almost like not quite an arm's length element to it but there is that distinct you're not linking with WPP, but you're linking with this part of WPP that handles these sort of relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, these businesses are obviously, you know, big in their own right. A lot of them do invest off their balance sheet, which is great. We're always looking for co-investment opportunities as well. So, you know, they can potentially send things our way. But yeah, it becomes pretty apparent quite quickly when you're meeting them, which ones are, which ones are up for it. And yeah. um, what do you see the benefits to the partner? Because presumably, I mean, if they're co-investing, clearly they're looking for a financial return, but they're looking for more than that. It's an innovation mindset. I think, I think that, you know, the, the bigger 
it's a well-trodden path, isn't it? You know, the larger these businesses get, the less innovation they have because it's all about systems and process and box ticking in these large bureaucratic organizations. And all of the innovation, a lot of the innovation anyway, is happening within the startup and growth capital community. So for them, that is the big one. They will also inevitably end up with quite a lot of white spaces within their business. So they need to understand what potential startup or growth capital opportunities are out there that they could acquire to fill those spaces. So I think you can throw a number of other reasons at it, but bottom line, it's innovation. That's the main driver and closely followed by financial return but that's probably less of a factor than innovation itself, yeah. for sure. And the innovation is it, it, so one of one of one of the concerns that uh, I think a few people have had, and something we've seen in the past. And admittedly, these stories are quite old now. I, I mean, I had friends who, better part of a couple of decades ago, were working for a tech company. A big US company came in. We're your corporate partner. Great. Basically, took the IP and said, kind of said, sue us. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. And, and and there's been several, you know, I think there's a couple of very prominent episodes of that. And that's clearly a concern that some people still have out there. But do corporates still behave that badly or? Well, it's all about how you draft the docs and the deal. You know, I, I think you need a good lawyer. Um, but, you know, <laughs> anyone, anyone, anyone walking in with any sense of naivety about how those partnerships work will probably end up getting... Uh, having problems i think just because someone's bigger than you it doesn't necessarily mean they're better so you have to have the confidence to sort of go in and say you know these are the terms that we're willing to play on if they work for you great if not don't worry about it it's as simple as that and in great partnerships there's mutual respect on each side anyway but you know if somebody's gone into a relationship that you know and they've signed a deal and the corporate's turned around and and said, we'll see you later, we're taking the IP, you can only blame them for being naive. Right. To be frank, for sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. That would be my view. Okay. <laughs> when you get all these stories to second or third hand, you're never quite sure of the details of what, yeah. what's actually going on in practice. But Yeah, for um, sure. But yeah, listen, you've got to be aware, you know, you're doing deals in the end of the day. You know, you have to have your wits about you, 100%. Yeah. And you don't always get it right, right? We all get things wrong. So yeah, you just gotta you just gotta be aware. Yeah. So is this an area that you see kind of evolving? Because if I think about these sort of corporate partnerships, say ten years ago, no would would have mentioned the word accelerator in, or or incubator in in, in relation to, to that. So clearly mm. the way that these companies are interacting up is this kind of there's a greater perception of the advantage of dealing with the startup area and and then they're putting structures in place what how, how has it changed well i think i think that um there's definitely been a proliferation of incubators and accelerators and you know some people do it for window dressing others do it because they actually believe it means something but you know for, for us i, I think yeah, you know, i think we've made 38 investments now across you know all different parts of our business and you know there's been there's been three or four instances where we've partnered with corporates in a significant way 
And then there's been other times when we've leveraged relationships to help drive revenue growth, EBITDA growth, or improvements of consumer experiences through corporate partnerships. So, you know, it's still only a small part of what we do, but when it applies, it's quite clear what the benefits are for both sides of the deal. So then you move forward. So it's still it's still a small part of what we do, but nonetheless, it can be very effective if we if we leverage it properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that actually raises a question about how did you use the right part corporate partner? Is it is it some sometimes it's a case of it's obvious, or you've just got or or you just got your better connections, or how how do you pick one? Well, so, so, sometimes it's obvious. So when when we Invested in Silvercar. Silvercar was an airport car rental business in the US that we sold to Audi for $91 million. And the only car that you could um, rent was a silver Audi A4. So we weren't going to go to Mercedes. So (laughs) that was pretty clear that it was an Audi play. Um, And that ended up being quite successful. Sometimes it comes from the founders. So we tend to go into founders and say, right, if there's a list of five or 10 things that we could do for you, no no restrictions, you know, put down whatever you want, what would it be? And obviously, when I spoke to uh, Dylan, who ran Super Awesome way back when we were going through DD, one of them was the partnership with WPP because, um, you know, a lot of their agencies would be customers, a lot of their agencies and clients would be customers for the products and services that Dylan had to sell at Super Awesome. So, you know, it, it always depends and different people drive the decision. But yeah, I mean, you know, we, we've got something going on with Amazon Alexa at the minute on voice tech. The pick would be Amazon and Google, but we know someone at Amazon and we like the Alexa technology. So, you know, we went down that route with them. And likewise, we did some stuff with the publicist group early on in our seed fund. You know, our first three seed funds were partnered with the publicist group. So it all it all depends. It all depends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could be different factors. Yeah. And and looking forward, I mean, it seems to me this and there has changed rapidly. Have you got a view on how this, this is likely to change going forwards? I mean, do you see these big corporates continuing effectively outsourcing a lot of the R&D work? Or do you think they're going to get a grip on innovation and, beca- and do more internally or...? Well, people people are trying to do it in different ways. I mean, if you, if you look at the big consultancies, you know, they've got some challenges that they need to evolve. So, you know, McKinsey are doing a load of stuff in digital. Boston Consulting Group have got BCG Digital Ventures. Boston Consulting Group have also backed a fund for the first time ever. So over the last six years, they backed a good friend of mine, Raj Ganguly, who runs B Capital, which is a which is a global deep tech venture capital firm. So, you know, people are playing in lots of different ways and I think it's going to become more prevalent. For us, I think that, you know, it's always going to be about the right partner and I think probably 10 to 15% of our investments will engage with corporates on our cap tables in some way, shape or form. But I don't really see it being any more than that. Okay. What I'd like to do now, having worked through these couple of things you do, is move on to our standard questions. Sure. So we'll throw these at you and get what your thoughts are. 
So what's the most recent publicly announced investment you made and why do you make it? So the most recently publicly announced was our follow-on into kit game. So the main reason for that was we did a we did a small check in April 2020. So that was the first uh, investment we did. And then obviously to turbocharge the growth of the business because it's grown that rapidly, uh, we wanted to do a follow-on round. A to support the business, but B, you know, when you've got your great when you've got your winners, you need to follow into your winners. And you know, for for us as an investor, we've got great conviction in what we're doing. And I think, you know, the work that we do, when we have conviction, we do go all in. And I think that's really important. And I think you're also sending a message to the founders that you believe in them and you wanna you wanna support them on their journey. So in terms of the last publicly announced investment, that was it. And we were already in it, so it was just following on and uh, increasing the size of our stake in that business. So in the classic market triumvirate of market product and management, we, we know they're all really important, but which one for you is the most important? Management, 100%. Every single time I have an issue, it's people. Every single time. And unfortunately... <laughs> Even with all of the work that we do around referencing psychometrics and all of that, we can have challenges. So some people just don't get it and they don't understand the level of commitment and the standards of output that you need to succeed at this level uh, in an extremely fast-paced environment. Some people can lack leadership qualities, can't build cultures, there's leaders that we've come across that, you know, avoid conflict, which can, can cause a huge amount of problems within a business in terms of communication and direction. So we're constantly trying to refine how we assess. But at the same time, we're probably getting it 75% right. So there's still room for improvement. But a lot of the work that we do around psychometrics makes sure that we sort of eliminate potential uh, negative situations down the line. I think that secondly, product, I think product is key. I, I, I think consumers are pretty savvy today. So you have to have the best product. And um, so to give you an example, we invested in a business called Sprout in Sweden, which is a plant-based milk made from peas. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's an A-grade product. There is no doubt about that. This is one of the best tasting plant milk products on the market. It's really healthy. It's sustainable. There's lots of things to like about the product itself. We like the brand, but it's not really been marketed in the right way. So we said, well, okay, we, we, we know that we can fix that. It'll take us a year or so. So we've been on a bit of a journey to evolve the brand itself with the team, which which we're, we're, we're sort of halfway through that project. Market's important, but, but I think that if you've got a market of, you know, the compound annual growth rates of 50% a year, but you've got a C-grade team and a B-grade products, we're just never going to do the deal. I think you need, you need an A-grade team. And an A-grade team, by the way, may not be there. But an A-grade CEO or an A-grade founder is going to be self-aware enough to say, listen, Right, I'm doing everything at the minute, but this is what I'm really good at. I need to recruit person A, person B, and person C, and this is what I need them to do. Can you help me? That's an A-grade 
CEO. You know, they're the types of noises that you want to hear. And you also want to be clear that these people are going to show initiative and go off and just get stuff done. Because execution, in the end, you can sit and talk strategy all day. In the end, you've got to execute. You've got to deliver. You know, you've got to engage people. You've got to get them moving in the same direction as you. So I think we're always going to, if, if it's an A-grade management team and an A-grade product and a compound on your growth rates of 10%, we're probably going to do it because they're going to beat the market. Yeah, for sure. So management, product, then market would be my my three in that order. Great. That's a very thorough answer. Tell us about the time you failed and what you learned from it. Oh God, there's loads. There's there's absolutely loads. I won't remember I won't mention the name of the company, but made an investment into a business in the US because everybody else was doing it. And I think it was at the time when I think you as an investor, it probably takes you seven, eight, ten years to actually build confidence and conviction. Because we live in a world where there's people are like sheep. Investors are like sheep where everyone's following each other into their deals. And so that can breed a lot of insecurity. And what you, what you figure out at some point as an investor is that you have to truly believe in your convictions, whether you're right or wrong, and have the confidence to move forward with those, with your team. And we as a firm have now developed that, whereas before you would look, you would look at firms, oh, they're bigger or they've been around longer, so they're investing. So we should invest alongside them. Any decision that we've made to follow anyone who we perceive as bigger or better has gone badly. So we don't do that anymore. So we are a lead investor. I think I think that obviously we're, we're raising an EIS fund, so that's going to be more Series A co-investment where we will lead and co-lead. But in our growth crap fund, we are a lead investor. We have we take significant minority stakes, but we look and feel like a majority. That's clear. And um, the founders like that. They like having us alongside them. We're not running their business, but we are we are certainly supporting them. But yeah, the big mistakes I've made in my life are following others rather than following my own convictions. I think that's probably the answer I'd give you. How important do you think it is? This is not in my list, but I'll, I'll say it. How important is it? Do you think it, think it is to be differentiated in your decision making? Because you know, we, we spoke earlier about trends and, 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 you know, I mean, I saw a few years ago about AI and everybody was jumping on anything with AI, anything was jumping on because it was AI and, and, and a lot of people weren't AI. At the same time, if you want to get the best return, the outside returns, do you, you probably have to be differentiated? How do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. Great question. And it was really important. So many years ago, I reached out to a good friend of mine who I had a lot of respect for, a guy called Ian Slater, who was a senior managing partner of Close Brothers Private Equity. And I've known Ian since 2008. He, uh, we were introduced by a mutual friend. And he, I had heard that, you know, he was thinking about retiring or retiring from, 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 from Close Brothers. So we got together and I said to him, I said, I said, Ian, I really need to try and think about how we institutionalize the back end of the business, institutionalize our processes, 
and make sure that we have a process around our thinking which isn't too rigid and also allows us to continue to be operate, um, entrepreneurial. So it really is quite important. But your decision-making process is only as good as the people that you've got around the table and then the culture that you create around allowing them to speak freely and having an opinion that's valued. So, you know, our investment committee process is always being refined, you know, from the minute we see a deal to the minute we invest and then exit. You know, our partnership size, there's currently two partners. We're going to have four partners. It's myself and Andrew at the minute. And we've got obviously very different backgrounds, but shared values. And we've decided to bring in operators to the business now. So we've got somebody joining us from Nike and somebody joining us from Amazon. So shared values, but different perspectives. And I think that's really important. So a lot of investment firms are made up of bankers, accountants and consultants, but we've never done anything, right? I mean, I've run business, I've operated businesses. You know, I've built this business from the ground up. Andrew, my partner, he worked at Marlin Private Equity in their operating team, but they would send him to run businesses as a CEO or a CFO, you know, restructuring and turnaround. That's sort of what we do. And I think that you get a level of respect from the founders if you've done it before, because you can empathize with them. So I think it's really important for a business like ours to be run by operators. There are bankers, accountants, and consultants in our business. Do not worry about that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, at the front you need end that of the corporate business, finance expertise somewhere down the line. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But the front end of our business, we're operators. Yeah. And the founders love that because we can, we can empathize with them and we can give them a view. And I think at Growth Cap in particular, we're not putting debt into businesses. It ain't about building a DCF and sort of, you know, tweaking with your cells and coming up with an IRR that sort of works for you. It's about getting involved, getting stuck in and making things happen for, for the businesses. Now, you know, the key thing for us then <laughs> is having founders who are willing to listen. They don't have to do everything we say willing to listen, willing to learn, willing to evolve. But also as well, if we open doors for them, they have to walk through the doors with the right attitudes, the right values, so that, you know, the partners that we open up to them come away seeing them in a positive light. And, you know, we've had many instances, most of our instances, where founding teams have respected that and done things in the right way. And we've had one or two instances where they haven't. And so, you know, those are the businesses where we, we, we end up finding that we have to enact change and move things forward in a slightly different way. But, you know, that's all part of the investment process as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's an interesting journey every time, I think. So the EIS industry in which we work is great in many ways, but it's far from perfect. Is there anything you'd like to change about it? Oh, God. Well, I think the main thing... I've been pretty impressed by the people that I've met. I've done a few talks now and met quite a lot of people. There's some great people in the industry. But this whole thing around track record of doing EIS per se, I think people have got to, you know, change their views on that because we've been around. We've been around for 10, 11 years, driving great returns for investors across growth cap deals of a range of between one and a half million and six million ticket size. That's sort of what we do. So as far as I'm concerned, 
we've got a great track record. The other thing that's quite interesting is that we run EIS, so we've also got fund administrators and all of that at SEIS level. And the EIS fund we want to raise is essentially replacing our current growth cap fund, because that's the three to seven million ticket fund. But our next fund, which is 150 million, is going to be doing seven to ten. So we've got a gap and we're filling it and we've got a track record to back it up. Just because we've never done EIS before, I think it's irrelevant mm -hmm. because the ticket sizes, the check sizes, all of the things that we would apply to those businesses is exactly the same as we will be doing for our EIS cohorts anyway. So that would be the main thing. But other than that, I think it's great. You know, it's been very enjoyable meeting, meeting the people we've met so far. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Some, I think whenever you're in the industry, you can you can always just become a little myopic sometimes in terms of, of you know you our, our industry is you know, if you haven't done anything outside the industry, that's not quite right. But yeah, it's not quite right. We, we we're running institutional money, you know, closed ended ten year GPLP funds, right? Uh, discretionary capital. You know, as far as I'm concerned, that's that's the pinnacle of what we do. So all of the disciplines that we have developed there find themselves filtering down into our EIS business and to some degree our SEIS business. Absolutely. So as listeners know, I'm an avid reader. So I always ask someone for a book that they like and what they recommend. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah, if you want to build businesses, read Good to Great by Jim Collins. It's a classic. It's one of the first business books that I read probably 20, 25 years ago. It still applies today. Great book. So that is the one for me. And then everything else goes from there. Okay. Yeah. Well, I haven't actually read that one. I've read quite a lot, but that one I'll have to add to my shopping list. Yeah, it's cracker. Yeah. yeah. What do you wish you knew when you started with VGC that you know now? I think I knew, but it's become more prevalent that everything's about people. And I've studied psychology, but the best psychology training is on the job. And everything is people. And you can have the greatest business in the world, but if it isn't run properly and the people aren't great, you're never going to get there. And likewise, you know, my journey has been about engaging and motivating talented people to move in the direction that we want them to move and that requires a lot of persuasion a lot of motivation a lot of management a lot of leadership and that is the key and being able to sell being able to be commercial being able to negotiate all people that has been the thing for me you know, you can know about everything else. And I think we had this debate all the time when I was, at, I was at business school because I wasn't the greatest financial modeler in the world, that's for sure. And I, I got great comfort from, I'm not going to tell you his name, but there was a really great guy that I met who's raised, you know, multiple funds, 25 billion buyout funds. And I was in his office on Palmal and um, I asked him this question about, you know, when I was in business school, everyone thought private equity was out about building models. And he goes, don't worry, kid, I've never built a model in my life. <laughs> and, you know, it's a really important one because anything in private equity, 
you know, building models is a commodity. Doing PowerPoints is a commodity. Anyone can do it. It's about networks and it's about getting people to come with you and believe in you, whether that's founders, whether that's investors, whether that's advisors. I mean, we've got some top advisors. You know. We've got some really interesting people joining the business, you know, CEOs of big banks and all of that type of stuff. You know, you have to sell to them. You have to actually convince them that you're somebody that they want to attach their name to. So, you know, across the spectrum of everything we do, it's people. It's the start and it's the beginning and it's the end. Yeah. And everything else is a, is a commodity skill set that you sort of build in. Good insight, I think. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at VGC, where should they go? So I think website, first off. So there's quite a lot of interesting things on our website. There's also a lot of press releases around interesting projects that we've done across the portfolio. There's a number of talent projects that have been written about in the press that we've done with some of our brands, which is quite interesting. You know, we're obviously we're obviously raising the funds. So you know, there's a lad called Hugo Dodge who's running that for us. So if if any IFAs out there are interested in in what we're doing and would like to place some of their clients' money with us, Hugo would be the guy to to get all of that moving for them. Right. Well, we'll post a link to the website in the show notes. But thank you very much for coming on today, Pranamana. I found that fascinating sort of almost case studies are there. Really appreciate your time, Brian. I thought you did a really great job today with the, with the questions. Really great questions, which allowed me to give you some great answers. So you've obviously prepped for this, and I, I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. Cheers, Brian. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.